Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the irredeemable shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. In 1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? The ABC Sunday Night Movie presents the most spectacular space adventure ever filmed. Transport yourself in time to a star system far beyond our own galaxy. Core systems transferring control to probe craft. Launch when ready. Star Galactica, a saga of a star world. I got him on the left. I got him on the right. We had his precision flying. For a thousand years, a race of alien machines has been bent on destruction of the human race. They hate us with every fiber of their existence. And now their evil plans may become reality. It's dangerous around here. remnants of the human race in their quest for a new world. This 13th colony, this other world, where is it and what is it called? Earth. And be there for the ultimate confrontation. Enemy closing, 30 microns. But if you're wrong... 25 microns. No, I'm not wrong. 15 microns. Cylons lured me into their perception once. Closing in, 5 microns. Never again. Star Galactica.
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am involved in a complex, long-awaited recording session with my good buddy, Shag Matthews. Welcome Woo! aboard, Shag. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here, more than I could possibly convey <laughs> through a microphone right now. Well, it's, it's you know, for anybody listening, uh, we, we enjoy talking to each other very much, but... It is so difficult to coordinate our schedules to record that we had to plan this months in advance. And I'm going to give you uh, a little background, which is going to, I'm just afraid it's going to redeem you. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we, we were talking back and forth, going, trying to figure out what we were going to do. We wanted to do something, you know, I'm on the Two True Freaks Network, Shag's on the Fire and uh, Water Network, and... We wanted to do some sort of a crossover, which we've done in the past in certain episodes, but we were trying to figure out how to do it. And we decided we would do a movie a movie with a comic adaptation. And then it became, well, what movie are we going to do? And it went, we went on and on and on. And Shag suggested a couple of things to me. And I said, oh, you know, these, these things might be okay. Uh, and, and then apparently he got just taken you know the fever hit him and he went running he went to amazon he ordered me a copy of the movie that that we were going to do uh and and it, i haven't been able to stop him since i was gonna say i think you're being a little more generous i think it was first of all we we started coordinating it like six months ago because like okay let's do something in march and that was like last fall uh, and then when it became time it's like hey we started talking at comic adaptations i'm not sure you even got a chance to respond before i was sending you blu-rays and figuring out what we're going to do and putting together agendas i think you were you're probably working and i'm like no we're and got a little manic um but we're here and it was, I, but got, it, I have to say it was a lot of fun manic <laughs> i got my way that's what was important <laughs> <laughs> so what we decided to do was we are we are doing the original pilot for battlestar galactica which i've now come to understand is titled saga of a star world uh and we are going to follow up this. This is going to be released on April 9th. And then we are following this up on April 16th on Shag Show, Once Upon a Geek, where we are going to discuss not only the comic book adaptation of the show that we're doing right now, but also, you know, peripheral information on top of that. So listen to this and a week from now, go find that. That, yeah, so you'll find that over on the Firewater Podcast Network. The show is called Once Upon a Geek. It'll be episode 10. And yeah, I'm so excited because, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about the Battlestar Galactic comic. We might diverge a little bit into more of the BSG universe, but we're also going to talk about some other comic book adaptations that are near and dear to our heart. So all in all, it's, it's a big, glorious love fest for 1970 sci-fi comic type stuff. And, and not to go into the 2000s reboot, but I have to say my familiarity is more with that reboot than it is with the original show. And now that's where I'll give you kind of my background with the original show. When they aired this, uh, which apparently was September 17th, 1978, uh, I believe that's correct. Uh, I, uh, I watched it and I thought it was really cool. And I have no idea why, but I never followed up and watched the series. Hmm. Okay. So I, you know, I liked it. I thought it was a, a, a good small screen. I mean, the special effects were, you know, cutting edge for the time, but I thought it was a good small screen uh, diversion, you know, or, or something to kind of tide me over until we got another Star Wars movie. Sure, sure. 
You know? That's exactly it's exactly what it was designed for. I mean, no yeah. doubt about it. They they looked and said, "There's a market here for Star Wars fans," and that's and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But yeah, that was definitely that. And it's funny because anybody who listens to Is It Yours knows how much I love the Planet of the Apes franchise, <laughs> and the same thing is true for that. When they came out with the TV series, I watched the first episode. I thought this is cool. It's kind of kind of capturing the spirit of what I want, and yet I didn't watch the series again until much, much later. Like, mm. I didn't actually watch it while it was coming out. Now, you had to keep in mind, I was a teenager at this point, so it's I wasn't a captive to being home every night. Oh, right, right. And and we did not have VCRs at this time, so it's not like I could, uh, you know, tape it and watch it later. But for whatever reason, I was okay with not seeing it, which I don't know why. The current geek in me would be wanting to smack young me in the face. <laughs> Well, it's it's sort of interesting too because uh, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna play a little bit of uh, you know uh, nerdy push my glasses up and go well actually so so you mentioned this came out in September 1978 that was the televised version that we watched absolutely the three the first three episodes were the pilot you know essentially for Battlestar Galactica but what we're going to be reviewing today is actually the theatrical cut of that same story so what, it's really weird what they did. They filmed it, right, for television for the United States, but then they spent so much money that they wanted to recoup some of the costs they sunk into it, so they created a theatrical cut that they released in other countries months before they ever showed it in the United States. So even though it was made for the U.S., Canada, Japan, some European countries, they got a slightly shorter version of the same story as a movie in their theaters. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. And that was released in July 78. And then we get it on TV in September 78, uh, a little extended. So sort of interesting how the, the history of how the release and the intention of all that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And it, it, again, you know, it's funny when you think about them releasing this, you know, on the coattails of Star Wars, because this certainly has the feel that they were trying to recreate that. And the other thing that kind of comes to me is, okay, Star Wars came out, so we're going to do is Star Trek, the motion picture, which has mm. no Star Trek, Star Wars feel to it at all. And, you know, people debate whether they love that or not. And I'm not going to debate with you on that, but I would not debate for a second that it does not have a Star Wars feel. Well, the, the connective tissue through I, all of this is ILM, right? You know, uh, it, ILM gets developed for Star Wars. Then John, I can't, I, Dykstra, who was, you know, basically the man who did a lot of the photo shooting for ILM, works on Battlestar Galactica. I don't know if they were called ILM at that point. I don't remember when they actually got that name. I, I, as a Star Wars nerd, I should know that. But anyway, so they work on Battlestar Galactica. Then they go on and, if I'm right, didn't they do Star Trek The Motion Picture as well? I think they did. Yeah. So I think that's the connective tissue is that you've got these big budget, glossy, amazing ships flying through space. So you can't help but connect them, even though you're right. Star Trek motion picture is worlds apart from something like this. Yeah. I mean, this is science fiction as opposed to space opera. Oh, yes. This is space opera. Star Wars (laughs) is space opera. Star Trek is science fiction. (laughs) There's a clear distinction. So here we go. I'll, I'll play a little uh, 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 devil's advocate with you. I would say, yes, Star Trek is definitely science fiction. I would say this is uh, probably space opera. And I would say Star Wars is more space fantasy, really. I mean, it's 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 very much the fantasy tropes uh, that you would get, you know, with your yes, dragons. It's your the hero's journey. Exactly. Exactly. So I think they're I think they're almost three different genres a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, Star Wars of the three, 
Star Wars certainly has the most in common with, say, Lord of the Rings, which is clearly mm-hmm. fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Also, you know, I, also the most successful out of them, I would say, probably as well. Yeah, oh yeah. So, uh, my history with Battlestar Galactica, thanks for asking, by the way. I was about to. <laughs> oh, sure you were. We're all Go talking step about on me, you man. and you and Star Trek, and we're all over the board. I'm like, I'm sitting over here going, what about me? I liked it. So, all right. <laughs> I watched it first run when it aired. You know, I, I did I catch each individual episode? I have no idea. I don't remember. Because I watched it so many times in reruns that, you know, it all starts to blur together, right? But I definitely watched it first run. I remember uh, watching the follow-up, which is Battlestar Galactica or Galactica in 1980. You remember? I don't know if you remember that thing. Uh, I remember it being out. I've never actually seen it. You're saving yourself some time. (laughs) It was a very pale, pale shadow of this. There's some some things to love in it, especially if you're a hardcore fan. But on the surface, it's really bad. So, And then I watched it in reruns over and over and over. And, I mean, I remember I used to play Battlestar Galactica with my Star Wars action figures, right? If I had enough Stormtroopers, they were they were Cylons, you know? Uh, mm. I would I would doodle Vipers on my school papers, like, you know, just for doodling. I did that up into, you know, 10, 15 years after the show aired. I was still doing that. And <laughs> the, the theme music. So my wife accuses me of doing with my uh, action figures now. <laughs> Well, there's, you know, there's something to be said for that. Um, the, the theme music by Stu Phillips, you know, the da, da, mm-hmm. da, 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 so good. I mean, I hummed that all the time growing up. I still hum it. I, I, t- I would say it is possibly one of the best TV scores of all time. I, I don't know if I could say it's the best, but it's absolutely one of the best TV scores of all time. See, I thought the score was awesome, so I'm not arguing with you on that. There were moments where it felt like they didn't time it right. Mm, okay. All right. Where it just felt like you know, it like it came to a, to a peak too early or too late. Uh, whereas if they had timed it a little better, I think it would have been even more effective. But I do think right. the music is awesome. It's it's something where you could like you know pop the CD in in your car and and you don't have to watch anything. Right now, there are scenes that get very seventies, like in the casino and stuff like that, which are are hysterical to listen to because I mean back then that's what the future was was super seventies disco, right? So uh, there's some some moments that are just hilarious with the music, but for the most part, yeah, that that overall theme is just amazing. You know, the, I'm just thinking, you know, you talk about like in the casino, and there's there's just things where it just feels like they're trying so hard to be Star Wars. Oh yeah, yeah, without it, that's definitely their cantina. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, you could just pull back a little. But, <laughs> but you know, there's also the thought, though, that maybe I'm being unfair there because I'm talking about this in 2023 and how it looks now that that's become such a cliche. You know, back in 1978, yeah, they were still trying to recreate the feel of what happened, but it only happened a very short time ago. And, it you know, it wasn't cliche yet. Well, I actually have a lot to say about that, um, but I want to hold my thoughts for just a moment sure. because I was talking, Paul. Uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 whose show is this? <laughs> it's your show, and damn it, I have things to say. So I'm still talking about me here, which is the most important thing. So by the late 1980s, right? I'm, yeah, I, go ahead. Keep going. I see. Yeah, still talking. I'm going to go get uh, a drink. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Battlestar Galacta, is it kind of disappeared. Like people forgot about it by the late 1980s. It just went away i felt like i was the only one who remembered it you know i knew lots of kids who like was that a thing they just you know was out of their head and i met this guy who owned a or maybe i guess he owned it a local video rental store and he had 
all the episodes recorded on VHS. Like somebody had rerun them and he'd recorded them in the early 80s. And he just gave me these old recordings. And I watched them over and over and over and over. And I felt like I was the guy guy keeping the, the BSG flame alive, you know, for all these yarns. I did this. And I think my friends knew I was the Battlestar Galactica guy. I, I had a buddy who went to a, like a junk sale and he found Battlestar Galactica color forms from the 1970s. I didn't even know these oh, things wow. existed. And he bought them for me. They were like a treasured, you know, prize for me. And I would actually follow the actors to other shows, like watch Lauren Green on Westerns just because it was Lauren Green. I didn't care about a Western, but I wanted to see more of him. And then oh, I remember- You, you got to love him on Bonanza. Come on. He's so good. He's so although, good. Although, and I have to throw in the line from the movie Tin Men. Are you familiar okay. with that at all? Yeah, yeah. Because there's, there's, the, there's one guy who's obsessed with, with uh, Bonanza. Okay. And and another guy comments, and I haven't seen it yet for years, so I might be paraphrasing a little. But the guy says, "What what are you talking about? It's a show about a fifty year old man and his three forty year old sons." <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> no, no. But I, I always got a big kick out of that, and every time I watch Bonanza, that's what I think of now. That is so funny. Uh... So but I, you can I, go on. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, it's okay. I, I was the only the last part I was going to say about that is just I remember going to Dragon Con, uh, you know, before the reboot or reimagining started and visiting with Richard Hatch and, and Dirk Benedict, you know, multiple times and chatting with them about them and their experiences and stuff like that, you know, as they were guests there. And it just it was so, I loved it so much. I, I don't put myself out there as an expert at it by any means, but I just have a huge passion for it. I think that's good enough. So, you know, I. I, I've gotten into this discussion a few times with people and uh, especially when I talk to professionals and, and if I have them on a sh- on one of the shows and they say, well, I'm not an expert on this. And my, my, my take is always, well, I'm not an expert on anything, but I have passion <laughs> towards stuff. And that's what people, that's what I think attracts, you know, listeners to it is they, they sense the passion. They know what you love and what you don't love. They know I certainly the listeners of the show know I love movies. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes that love is enough. I, I recently did an episode, which will probably air after this, uh, with two two guys who are involved in filmmaking. Mm. And I said, these guys know more about filmmaking than I'm ever going to know. But that doesn't mean they know what they like any better than I do. Mm. Okay. And that's the reality. Yeah. So, you know, passion passion goes a long way. Uh, well, the, I, the, par- the partner to this show is my show, The Once Upon a Geek. And that's what that whole show is built on. It's just simply talking about things that bring me and my guests joy. That's that's all the show is. And we don't claim to be experts. We don't necessarily have a continuing theme, episode to episode. It's just something that brings us joy. And that's that's where it is. It's all about the passion. It's about finding our happiness. So yeah. I know that's another it's another tangent that I'm going on here too, but that's where I get kind of bothered uh, by gatekeepers. Right. Yeah. People start with, well, I'm a bigger fan of this than you are because I know more about it. You know, I've realized on this show and on Back to the Bins, on Back to the Bins in particular, a lot of times, you know, a comic will come up with a character where I say, oh, I love that character. And then when we start talking about it, I realize, boy, I haven't read nearly as much of that character as I thought I did. But that doesn't make me love the character any less. So if somebody who read every single issue starts feeling like, well, you can't talk about it because I know more about it than you. All I can think is, you know, the middle finger starts going up a little. <laughs> well, I'm totally going to gatekeep you with the uh, Starbuck here in a minute. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying, <laughs> if you don't know about Starbuck and his ending from Galactica 80, I can't even have a conversation with you then. Boy, that sounded so Professor Allen like just now. <laughs> so I want to round back to what you were talking about earlier, because it, it's a great point about how sometimes they try a little too hard. Because, yeah, like the casino scene, it looks like a combination of... um 
yeah, the, the, the cantina from Star Wars, if, if it was filmed at Studio 54. Like, that's what it looks like <laughs> to me in 1978 is what that looks like. And, but you have the Star Wars Supremes in there. Right, right. And, and I think that's what... The, Probably the sticking point for me when I watch this, because again, remember, we're not, we're not technically talking about a TV show that you guys remember. We're talking about a theatrical movie. Is that all the model work, right? It, it and you put this in the perspective of 1978. I mean, take Star Wars off the table because we all know that was groundbreaking and different. But put it, look at the rest of the films that were out in 1978. Okay, now think about it in that regard. The model work in Battlestar Galactica, this film, is amazing. It's gorgeous. It looks theatrical. It's totally engaging. But then when they cut to live action, I don't know whether it's the lighting or the sets or the camera work. Maybe it's because it's on video. I'm not sure. It looks like a TV show. It doesn't look like a film. Is that just me or did you feel the same? There were points. There were points where it felt very much like like just you know kind of a slightly more sophisticated filming style but very similar to the 1960s star trek in some ways mm. uh there was one scene i'm trying to remember where they were they started descending into some sort of mountain area and clearly it was a matte painting yeah and that just oh, felt yes, very yes. very star trek like to me i know the exact part you're talking about so it's when they go to the casino planet which is called carillon and yeah and, and these insect creatures are have a hive down there yeah and they're trying to show the scope of how large the hive is so they do the map painting yeah with, with the little spots where you can see movement yeah looks a little yeah. bit like uh, return of the jedi when they the, in the original cut with the ewoks there's a, there's one map painting like that in the original but i mean you know clearly this this was made for i believe they said eight million dollars which was one of the most expensive tv movies uh, of the day, which is mm -hmm. why they tried to recoup some of their money in theatrical release. And when they released it in the theaters, they did so in sense around. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, you, you're not familiar with sense around? No, I'm not. That was that became big. There was uh, there was a movie which, and we're actually going to cover it on this show in the not too distant future because I'm going to be starting to do some disaster movies. There was oh, a movie in fun. 1974, I believe it was called Earthquake. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And it was released in sense around, which the whole idea was the speakers, uh, they had huge subwoofers that they would use. Uh -huh. And whenever there was a scene where some, where, the, where the ground should be vibrating and you could figure in a movie like called Earthquake, that would be a, a common occurrence. <laughs> uh, the, the subwoofers would be engaged so much that you would feel like your seat vibrating. Oh, now, okay. I don't know exactly when this movie would kind of use that particular effect. I assume it's when ships were like first taking off and that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, but but this was released in sense around. There were a handful of movies that were done that way. But the most famous one is Earthquake. It could be when like Starbuck and Cassiopeia were kissing. I mean, that would be pretty. That'd be a good moment to hit that baseline. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I, you know. I don't know if it's uh, if it's after the fact or if it's you know at the time, but they really did have quite the cast in this movie. They, they did, it, and I think part of the way they did that was, and this gets a little into areas I'm not an expert on, folks. But from what I understand, the original plan was to show this, like we saw in the theater, on television as a TV movie, like one film. And then the next couple episodes of the show, was it going to be another film? So they were going to do multiple 
long TV movies. And so I think that's part of the reason they were able to get this cast that you're about to mention is that they, they thought they had movie style budgets to do that. And then ABC somewhere along the line decided, wait a minute, no, we want a weekly series, which kind of changed a lot of the direction. But yeah, go ahead and start talking about the cast because it's it's really impressive. Well, I mean, the guy the guy who I guess in 1978 you wouldn't have known who he was uh, that just surprised me when I saw him in this was Rick Springfield. Right. I I, I was like, oh, what what the heck? And he, I mean, he was perfect to be, uh, you know, to be the younger brother of. Uh, also, I'm just drawing a blank. Yeah. So he played Zach. He was the younger brother of Apollo, played Apollo. by Richard Hatch. Yeah. But he, I mean, he he and Richard Hatch have a very similar look about them. They do. So that was they cool. Uh, Jane Seymour was a Bond girl already. Uh, oh, but I, okay. I, but, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't sure on the timing of all that. Okay. The, the, but the two of them, like, I don't know even 100%, like, if if that's hindsight to look back and say, oh, wow, that was, you know, those were a, a coup to have them in here. Or if at the time, you know, they were, I mean, certainly Rick Springfield wasn't a big star yet at that point. Uh, and his star rose and, dro- and dropped pretty quickly with, by those standards. <laughs> hey, he was uh, at General Hospital. Thank you very much. Yes, Dr. <laughs> Noah something or other. I was watching this with uh, my wife who's in the room not paying any attention to this. And she looks up. She's like, is that Rick Springfield? I'm like, yes, it is. So I actually got her attention for a minute. <laughs> and he's done everything for you, but you've done nothing for him. <laughs> but uh, 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 you know, but to me, to me, the casting coup. And this mm-hmm. one, you know, most people probably think, eh. But I thought Ray Milland was so good in this as uh, Siri, Siri Ori. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. He was so slimy and so hateable yes, he that, was. That, that he actually made me forget Baltar. <laughs> <laughs> he was perfect because he is the guy, uh, he, he's the disgusting politician who is, you know, he, he's, he's hoarding food. He doesn't care about his fellow man, but he's not quite a bad guy. He's just this, like you said, the slime ball, which made him so perfect. He was fantastic. And we also have Lou Ayers as the president was excellent. And then, you know, obviously Lauren green was a a household name at this point. So I I was going to say, I think that that walking into this, people knew Lauren green. I think they did know Jane Seymour. So I think those were probably the two biggest names out of the regular cast. I I would think, Um, I think, I think Ray Milland. Yeah. He won an Academy award for the lost weekend. I mean, he, he's okay. You know, Although uh, now, if I remember right, wasn't in, he wasn't he with Rosie Greer and the Amazing Two Headed Man or something along those lines? You know your movies much better than I do. Which now, which is one of the most campy things you could ever see ever. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that was him in, in that, and I'm trying to find his filmography. Now, while he's a big name, he wasn't probably advertised that much i don't think again no i don't i don't believe so yeah it was all about the 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 main colonial people in charge of the galactia is who i think you heard the most about now there's also i mean there's another shocking uh minor character in this who goes on to big things ed begley jr is yes i don't know he ever takes his helmet off i think he's only got his helmet on in the movie so it's hard to even realize it's him but he's in there which is great now to speak of the helmets, just to diverge again for a second, yeah. they look like Egyptian headdress. Do you, Absolutely. As far as you know, was that intentional? Yes. Yeah. There's a whole bit in uh, Battlestar Galactica, and I at some point I think it was in the beginning of the movie where there's a, there's a voiceover 
where it says, you know, that that there's legends that tell that man did not begin on Earth, but began out in space. And those might be the forefathers. And they say the forefathers of the Egyptians or the Toltecs or the Mayans. So they very purposely tried to build some of that design aesthetic into the, the characters' names, Apollo, you know, uh, Athena, all the, the mythological names is on purpose. The, the Egyptian headdress is on purpose. So the idea is that people that live this way, that had this kind of culture, came and settled Earth, and that's where we got the Egyptian pyramids. That's where we got the Greek gods. So that's kind of the philosophy behind those names, is that it was carried over when these people settled on Earth. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's always been a uh, a theory that, you know, Earth was somehow seeded with the uh, human population from, yep. you know, from, what, what are the chariots of the gods? Wasn't that that story? Uh, is that Star Trek, or is that... No, that's that was an actual book that i think theorizes that that's you know I'm that we, we my, were brought I'm, here i'm showing my ignorance sir well i, I or i could just be totally wrong uh, <laughs> so so rayma land I, I looked it up and i just threw it in the chat was in a movie called the thing with two heads <laughs> and and it's him and rosie greer and and they're, they're both occupying one body and it is the most campy thing you could ever imagine seeing oh my gosh <laughs> I'm looking at the the poster there. That is insane. Oh my lord! Well, again, I, I I love your commitment to talking about Sire Yuri, who again in my mind is a pretty minor character in the film. Well, you know what? I I I don't think he's that minor. I think he's minor as far as screen time, really. Yeah, that's what. But I, mean, I think yeah. he he is a very very big part of what makes the plot move uh, because okay. I see this movie as really a uh, commentary. You know, if you want to get beyond just the, hey, well, let's try and do Star Wars for TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see it as a commentary on uh, the SALT talks, which was the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. Uh, and that there was SALT in, I believe it was 1972. And then there was SALT II in 1981. And what they were, were they were uh, discussions between the United States and Russia, or the, the USSR at the time. Uh, and they were it was a treaty to limit what they were going to arm themselves with because, you know, the, the cold war was all about, okay, you know, we have more weaponry than you do and right. we could destroy the world 16 times and you could only destroy it 14 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was like, well, why don't we just both scale back? Because if we had to, you know, if we have to destroy the world, we could do it anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there was a lot of commentary in the, way this movie was put together on that whole theory of things because you know he's the one who's saying well if we if we let them know that we're going to just mind our own business and we're not going to you know we're going to lay down our arms and we're not going to help anybody else and we're not going to do anything they'll leave us alone and that's like to me that's almost his one saving grace is i think he truly believes that mm-hmm. I, you know I, it, whereas you know baltar is just selling out everybody else for his own benefit uh you know Siri Yuri is actually, you know, he thinks he's benefiting people, but he's incredibly naive, which, you know, Lauren Green seats right through and says, you know, we, we can't do this. I had thought about the politics side of it, but I hadn't thought about the comparison of Baltar to Sari Yuri in their two different positions and the relation to potentially the a commentary on the salt talks. That's fascinating. That's a really interesting observation. Uh, trying to echo what some people were saying at that time and how dangerous that philosophy would be. That could have very well been what Glenn Larson was trying to uh, touch on. 
I mean, I, I almost, it, it just seems so apparent to me that I can't imagine that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Now, I, what his commentary was exactly, and I can't say for certain, but certainly in this movie, it's, you know, hey, if you, <laughs> you can't trust the other side. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of themes going on here of, of desperation and what people are willing to do when they're desperate and things like that, that for me as a kid, this was just, and I'm talking about the TV show, really, not necessarily the movie, but whatever, it's all of a piece. It's good guys blasting robot bad guys. That's what it was to me, right? Flying around in cool ships and they're blasting the bad guys and the heroes always win and they always have a fun laugh. You know, that's what the show was to me as a kid. But then, um, thanks to the, the reimagined version of Battlestar Galactica, you know, that, that came out, I watched that and I'm not going to talk about it a lot here, but it made me think more about the themes of the story so that when I rewatched this version, wow i mean there's a lot going on here i mean the very serious subject matter very serious themes stuff that they didn't even have time to fully address because it moves at such a breakneck pace but and also they try and mix it with comedy to make it sort of a family thing but i mean you think about it if, if they had really given enough time for it to sink in you'd realize you know this is about the human race being systematically exterminated by an outside force i mean 12 planets were slaughtered, billions and billions of people dead. The human race is basically reduced to the number of people that can fill a football stadium. I mean, that's it. The human race is almost gone from the universe because somebody didn't like that they were different. And whether you think of that as maybe it's talking racism, maybe it's talking about nationalism, I, I don't know. It's ta- it, There's themes of people doing horrible things to other people, and you can interpret that in a million different ways. But I mean, they really didn't give you time for that to sink in. That this literally was, this is it. If these, if this small group of fifty thousand people don't make it, the human race is gone, and that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is. And so, I mean, I guess the message has to be, you know, this is this is what happens when you trust the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, even even though, actually, I'm just looking here now. Uh, Oh, no, okay. Because I, I had the Wikipedia page open, okay. and I mentioned something about the Camp David peace accords, and I thought maybe that was uh, that, something that, was... that they were saying as a theme, but that actually interrupted the uh, the original three-hour broadcast. Could you imagine being a kid getting special permission from your mom to stay up to watch you know, like this show, and then the Camp David accords interrupt to for like an hour or something like that? Jimmy Carter, get off my screen. I want to see the robots. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dude, when, when you're a kid <laughs> and you're watching TV and they, all of a sudden you see that special news bulletin breaking across the screen, which I guess doesn't happen nearly as much now as it used to because there are so many news channels. Right, right. But, but back as a kid when that would happen, it was a nightmare. Yeah. It was so annoying. It was the worst. I mean, you throw a tantrum. Like, I don't care. Like, well, something really bad has happened. Well, I wanted to watch superheroes and robots and all these things. So, yeah. So, again, so much of this happens so rapid fire. They don't give you a lot of time for the weight of it to sink in. There's a couple moments, you know, like when um, there's a good moment when Lauren Green's character, Adama, you know, makes this big pronouncement of how they're going to try and find this mythical lost human colony. To, maybe they can help them. And then it, there's a big, it builds and builds and builds and he reveals it's called Earth. And, you know, and you're like, yes. oh. Wow, that's oh, this is kind of a cool connection. All right, and then you get the scenes of like Athena uh, crying, you know, who's uh, Lauren Green's character's daughter. Those are those carry us some weight, but for the most part, it's just right under the next scene, right under the next scene, right under the next well, scene. You also have a moment, and and Lauren Green is you know very uh, 
stoic throughout mm-hmm. it. You know, he's he's passionate because you see, you know, he's trying to put his pl- plan into place, but he knows he has to be a leader. He knows he has to kind of take control of things. But they give him the scene when Zach gets killed and he gets to play, you know, the emotion and then having to fight through it. Yeah. Which yeah. I thought I thought that was, you know, a nice little slowdown there for a moment. That's that's fair. He did get some moments. You're right. And he's all it takes with him is, is a squint of his eye or an eyebrow or whatever. And he communicates so much with such an expressionful vo- uh, face that uh, it, he, he just carries it. Yeah, and you know, again, I mean, I don't want to go too much with this, but coming off of Bonanza, mm-hmm. he, you know, he played the father on that show, and I don't know how many episodes of Bonanza you saw, but when it was aired, I remember, you know, that was one of the shows that my family watched every week. Uh, you know, he was the father, he was the stoic, he was the one, you know, the, he had these these three sons who were all, you know, tough as nails, but every one of them, you know, when he got stern, every one of them would just back off and, you know never challenge his leadership. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that carried over to his portrayal here because that's what he was to America at this point. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I, so I think that. some of it was just automatically like, this is his presence and we know it already. Yeah. You automatically trust. It's sort of like when, um, uh, I'm blanking Landon, um, Michael Landon, Michael Landon from, you know, a lot of the good, will that he built up as the character on little house on the prairie carried over when you watch highway to heaven you're like okay i'm automatically invested in this guy being a good soul and uh, and, and, and he also carried from bonanza as well where he played little joe oh gosh yeah duh all right yeah good point so yeah he yeah he, he was definitely uh you know they, they were both they both had that same kind of thing going and just the interesting side point on that is michael landon's daughter is on the show yellowstone now all right. Very cool. I didn't realize that. Along with James Brolin's granddaughter. Oh, my god! Not, not that they're the major, major roles, but they're, you know, if, if you watch the show, you'd know who they were. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to see the tradition carried on. And then there's, you know, you, the other hand, you can scream, nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 but both both actresses do well with their roles. So I, I they may have gotten the roles through nepotism, but they certainly are capable. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of actresses, let's talk about some of these folks. So, like, we've talked about Lauren Green, how powerful he was. I was impressed with their casting of Colonel Ty, you know, the second in charge on the ship. Terry Carter was the actor, an African-American actor. And then you get one of the three main uh, Viper pilots. Boomer was Herbert Jefferson Jr. And they cast two African-American guys in very lead roles. And, you know, for the time, I think that said a lot for their casting department. See, you know. I, I understand that they, they didn't have too many African-Americans in leads on shows of this nature. You know, you'd mm-hmm. have a show like the Jeffersons or something exactly. like that, which would generally, you know, generally a black cast for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, but I did think it was common to have a, not common, but not uncommon either to have a black actor as the like second. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about like the mod squad where you had uh no, yeah, yeah, that's also, fair. Also, I can't think of his name. Uh, I'm only vaguely familiar with the show. I know well, remember the character's name was Link, and the actor, uh, damn, or or you know Bill Cosby on uh, I Spy or something like that. You know, 
Well, they, if you read about have... that, I mean, uh, Robert Culp had to fight to give Bill Cosby enough credit and recognition on that show every step of the way. Now, still, that's 15 years probably before this or 10 years before this. But I uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm out of line by saying that. I just I was impressed seeing that they gave them characters that were fairly well fleshed out, had a lot of screen time and were integral to the story. And I felt like they were contributing. I just, I guess I, I, I saw that as a positive thing. Oh, I, I definitely think it's a positive and I, I never want to minimize, uh, you know, proper uh, casting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, what I like about it is it was done. It was done naturally. It felt very natural. Exactly. It never felt like, okay, we have to give representation. It just felt like this is the actor who fits this role. End of story. I don't care what color he is. Exactly. It was not tokenism at all. And I thought that was great. I really liked it. And I like both actors a lot. I mean, they really carried a lot to it. And I've met Herbert Jefferson Jr. He's a super nice guy. And uh, yeah, I I, I really liked them in the roles. I just realized since we hadn't talked about them, I wanted to mention them. Because a lot of times people talk about Apollo and Starbucks, but Boomer, he was critical to it too. And then uh, not to go into too much with the... uh... (laughs) <laughs> again with the reboot but it's interesting to see how they how those roles got recast yeah but we'll talk about that you know what if you want to hear us talk about that listen to once upon a geek next week <laughs> we're we're going to touch on it we're not going to go i gotta warn people we're not going to go too deep because we got to talk about the comic book but we will definitely talk about the reboot more there um now let's talk about this version so all right growing up uh, and maybe this wasn't so much for you i gotta ask you so there's, there's three beautiful actresses in this movie right Morin jensen plays athena uh, Lorette Sprang plays Cassiopeia and Jane Seymour plays Serena. So I had a crush on one of them. Uh, what about you? Anything there for you growing up? I've had a crush on Jane Seymour since Live and Let Die. Okay, that's fair. All right. And I'm pretty sure if she came over here now, I'd still have a crush on her. <laughs> See, I was I was tainted. My dad worked for ABC and he met Jane Seymour and uh, said she wasn't really all that polite, which was uh, it's always kind of hung with me. And it makes me sad to know that. But I've heard that from multiple sources, sadly. Um, it does make me sad. You just killed my childhood. I know, I know. That's why you never want to know the uh, the act, the, the creators behind it. You want to know their work. You don't want to know them. So well, I, you know, I, it, it's it's a double edged sword though, because when you meet them and they turn out to be good people, it just makes you feel so much better about them. It's but but when you meet them and they're not, it, it really just kills them. I can't tell you how often I hear that when you know fans meet me. It's just uh, all the time, all the time. <laughs> So, uh, I had the biggest crush on uh, the like you're. I think you're supposed to have a crush on Cassiopeia because she's like the hot blonde. She's kind of the the Cheryl Teagues of the show or whatever. But for me, I had the biggest crush on Athena, um, who was you know on the bridge. She was an, she was an officer. She was Adama's daughter, and I just I still think she's just stunning, absolutely stunning. Well, I, I think you could just kind of put that across the board. <laughs> so I'll be a little skeevy one more thing and I will mention that they carried the grand tradition that George Lucas started with Star Wars that apparently there are no bras in outer space uh, James, <laughs> James Seymour clearly was following in Carrie Fisher's footsteps there so <laughs> I was not going to mention that I was because that's how bad of a person I that's am that's how you roll exactly exactly I, I, I recognize it and I appreciate it so, so uh, now one of the things that kind of made me cringe and i think it's more of a we're in 2023 now kind of thing i think back in 1978 it wouldn't have bothered me so much yeah but the uh was it daggett uh, <laughs> okay the dog yeah, yeah the robotic dog yeah uh, it just seemed so uh, it, you know it was just there for hey let's put something here that little kids are gonna like absolutely yep and, and it didn't do anything for me 
And it didn't, it didn't seem like a very realistic robot dog. Not at all. It's clearly, a you know, a, a little person in a costume. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I remember as a kid, so this came out with 78. So I would have been six. I mean, you know, or whatever watching this thing. Wow, you're young. I know, I know. But you say that in comparison to yourself, but I am not young, sir. <laughs> but um, I remember even as a kid, you know, I'm probably was Boxy's age or whatever. Even I was irritated with the kid actor and the robot dog as a kid. Like, I don't know, you know, it was there clearly for me as a viewer, but even I didn't like it. Oddly enough, as I've grown older, I, I find the Daggett charming now. I find it absolutely lovely and such a great idea. And I wish they'd worked it into the reboot somehow. I think it's so fun. But uh, I, yeah, it, it, it's it's not great. <laughs> that was probably the thing that took me most out of it. Uh, I really, I, I kind of, you know, they didn't always look real. Mm-hmm. But I did kind of like the effects on all of the alien creatures that we see throughout. Okay. Even, you know, even even the uh, uh, the the singing group with the four eyes and everything. Right. And the two I, mouths, I, yeah. I, I found myself just like staring when they were on the screen. Uh, you know, on the the, the bug uh, aliens were really well done for this. I thought. Yes, they were. Considering their budget, I mean, they look fantastic, and they had to build a lot of those things. And and the Cylons, I mean, what a great design to this day. They look phenomenal. Those the robotic Cylon Centurions, they look great. So, you know, a lot of times when this, and this is kind of, you know, after the fact, but a lot of times when the Cylons would talk, it almost reminded me of the droids in the uh, episodes one, two, and three of Star Trek, Star Wars, when, they, when they're going, you know, Roger, Roger, mm. those guys. Okay. And it was a little bit of that that reminded me of, and, and you know, again, tune into Once Upon a Geek, because then we'll talk about the way the dialogue is written for the <laughs> Cylons in that, which I think is very, very different. Mm. Uh, so, but you know, very, very interesting. Uh, I, I would have liked if they could have made the Cylons look just slightly less like a man. In, well, slightly less like a stormtrooper. Okay. They, they were just a little bit too much like a stormtrooper to the point where it really felt like it's just a man in, a, in an armor. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I understand the philosophy behind it. They're like, okay, the, the joints that need to bend get the rubber, not the chrome. And it's the same philosophy they use with stormtroopers, right? The white armor is the parts that can stabilize. The black stuff underneath is the stuff the per- the actor needs to move around in. So it, it it happens out of necessity, but I totally see what you mean. Yeah, there's a lot of reflection there, uh, pun intended, reflection with the chrome on the Cylons. But uh, I, I do love, I like the voice way they talk, you know, the by your command and the, in the red light that goes back and forth. I just thought yeah, oh, I love the red light. Incredible effect. It I love fantastic. the red light. I, that's, that's one of my single favorite effects uh, or, or affects. You yeah. Know, if you want to put it that way about this, the silence. And I do, I do like the very robotic voices. Um, I think, I, you know, I think I probably would have just built up certain parts of the, uniform or armor or whatever you want to call it to make it a little bit wider in certain spots just to make it look less like there's a person in there mm-hmm. make it look more like there's machinery going on sure sure and i think that that's where the reboot excels isn't doing that yeah i uh I, since we're talking about creatures and things like that i gotta mention something that's so funny that i never noticed before and this is the effect of buying the blu-ray watching it on you know a 65 inch television like you've never you know as opposed to your 10 inch you know off 
uh, rabbit ears that we watched growing up, right? Is there's something I never noticed before. So the, the Cylon Centurion robots, they have in this story a leader who's a, who's an alien creature. Now, they quickly get rid of that for the TV series. It's all robots, but they have it at some sort of alien creature, which is their leader. You assume it's probably the, the original Cylon creatures. I'm not really sure because uh, they did make reference to a Cylon alliance. So I guess they're allied with other races at some point. Anyway, so this creature's on this huge stand. You remember the one I'm talking about, the one with the weird face, mm-hmm. alien creature? Okay. Yeah. On his shoulder, and I never noticed this except because of the giant TV now, he's got like a gecko or an iguana or something. I did kind see of lizard. that. It's I did see that. I have no shoulder. idea what that is. I'm like, where did that come from? It's kind and of a I cool did. effect, though, if you think about it. It is. Well, and there's there's something in the mythos, and I don't think it was actually set on screen, but there's definitely something in the mythos was that the original Cylons were a reptilian race, and then they built the robots, and then the robots wiped them out, or the robots outlived them, one or the other. So I guess the argument could be made that this creature was one of the last, you know, reptilian uh, original Cylons, and maybe that's why it has a pet that's of a similar, you know, pedigree. It's a it's a you know a lizard pet as well. Could have been something like that. You know, I would like. I, I'm already head cannoning this that he <laughs> that he is one of the original creators, mm-hmm. and he's the last one. Mm-hmm. And that little thing that just looks like a little pet lizard, yep, is somehow his protector. His protector. Oh, the little one. That little him. thing that you think is almost insignificant. That like, if you know, <laughs> if they they asked me to write like a ba- a background comic for this, I'd be having a scene <laughs> where like one of one of the Cylons goes to eliminate him. Because he resent, you know, they resent him being sure. a, uh, you know, an, an actual life form, uh, mm-hmm. and and somehow that little lizard thing takes that Cylon out. That is hysterical. That is too funny. <laughs> You're writing your fan fiction right now. I will yeah. find you later on fanfiction.net, and uh, Paul will have a whole, you know, ten thousand word Battlestar Galactica story to tell. Yeah, I, I did see something though about the whole thing where, where they were created by this race that they either outlived or or exterminated and. Again, headcanon wise, I'm going with exterminated. Yeah, I would think so. That would make more sense. And they may have outright said it in the ongoing series. I just, again, we only re-examine this movie for these purposes. And then when we, when we uh, talk about, uh, you know, where things go from here, isn't it kind of the same theory as uh, Terminator? Oh, yeah, quite a bit, quite a bit. No, that was what 1980, right? 84, the first movie. Was it really that late? Okay, all right, wow. Things you forget as you get old. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm not getting old anymore. <laughs> I have so, arrived. <laughs> so there are a few differences uh, between this movie and what they aired on the television version. Because, you know, when they, they take this movie, they adapt it for TV. Um, in this version, Baltar, who betrays the entire human race, he's murdered by the Cylons. We, we, they rightfully show they should. You know, they say, hey, you know, we, we can't trust you. You wiped out your own people. You can't be trusted. And so they took him out. And then in the, in, when it goes to air for the TV series, they actually refilm that and he survives and he ends up commanding a battle star afterwards. So he becomes like the main nemesis uh, in, in the ongoing series. And then uh, apparently this is sort of interesting. The scene where Cassiopeia, well, interesting because I'm a, I'm a perf. So Cassiopeia <laughs> and Starbuck are making out like in, in one scene. And they, uh, the other girl who's jealous, like, turns on the steam jets and like burns them with steam. Well, apparently in the version that originally aired in the films, they were both naked in that scene and mm-hmm. they refilmed it with clothes on for the television version. And then when we got our film, we got the version with them with clothes on, which I feel ripped off. Yeah. 
I don't Although know. Although I, I don't need to anything. see Dirk Benedict, but whatever. Well, I don't know that they actually showed anything. You know, it's, it probably was very modest, I'm sure. It was probably just from the side or something, and you knew, like, oh, they're naked, but I can't see any naughty bits. But still, you know, it's uh, interesting that they, they changed it when they released the film for some reason. Any any other any significant story beats that were changed? Uh, they other developed, than Boltar? No, I mean, they, they developed Athena and Starbucks relationship a little bit more so that when... Because there, there's... And we didn't really talk about it, but there's like a push-and-pull romance between Starbucks and Cassiopeia, but also Starbuck and Athena, and, and they developed that a little more, so when it comes to a head, you kind of feel it more. I, that part was cringy, where he's on the, the casino planet, right, and he's trying to hook up with Cassiopeia, and then Athena shows up, and rather than the girls both realizing that he's hitting on them and getting mad at him, they're both fighting over him, which, like... I really felt like it should have gone a different direction. Even in 1978, they should have gone a different direction where both girls said, oh, you're trying to two-time me? Forget you, and both walked off rather than continuing to fight over him. Mm. I guess that, that's, that sounds like 70s TV to me. <laughs> let's, let's just talk, I just want to, because we're, we're going to be wrapping this one up relatively yep. soon, but I just want to touch on John Calicos, uh, Baltar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's somebody who I've kind of lived with through the years, and I love him. But like he, he's usually he's usually playing a heavy. Uh, you know, I first came into came, you know came into contact with him on Star Trek when he was uh, Commander Core. Okay, uh, and then in the mid seventies, I was I was one of the many people who was caught up with General Hospital and Luke and Laura and all of that. <laughs> And sure. he played he played Mikos Cassadine. Oh, oh my god, he did. Oh wow. But that like I'm sorry, I didn't mean to freak out so much, but like that's a memory <laughs> that I haven't touched in what 40 years, and you just made it all come back. Wow. I watched General Hospital a lot back then. Okay, yeah, you wouldn't you were gonna leave me out on that island by myself until I shocked <laughs> you. I completely forgot. I'm sorry, please continue, but that blew my mind. You're right. And then I didn't even realize when I looked him up that he was also the voice of Apocalypse on the X-Men animated cartoon. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that either. Okay. So, you know, he, he's he, he's kind of like the C-list actor who, when you think about him, he's, he's almost an A-list in your mind. Well, he's in everything. If you look at the IMDb, like Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five-0, uh, 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 <laughs> the Whiz Kid in Carnival Caper. Okay, maybe not that. But uh, Wonder Woman, Quincy M.E., Six Million Dollar Man, Battlestar Galactica, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, Charlie's Angels. I mean, everything we watched growing up. Vegas, he made, a, you know, a one-episode cameo on or something like that. So he was around in every Scarecrow and Mrs. King. He was in everything. I think I think part of his charm, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's from Canada, he's Greek, uh, and he's got a very kind of an ethnic look about him but an ethnic look that could kind of translate to various ethnicities. Sure. Yeah. And I'm just, I, I actually have his Wikipedia page open and, you know, they have a, a, like a kind of a still shot of him, but then below that they have a shot of him playing a native American in the movie war drums in 1957. Mm. <laughs> Excuse me. And then, you know, playing a Klingon and playing, a, you know, again, Miko's Cassadine. And there's just so many different things that, you know, his persona would allow him to play. It's what uh, they would call exotic back yes, then. Yes, right? I think yeah. that that's probably the exact right word. So you know, he's he's another one that I just think is very cool casting. Uh, he was fantastic. Um, 
There was another actor in here. Oh, and I'm not going to find a time. Oh, here we go. Wilfred Hyde White. He played. That familiar. Well, you probably know him from a million different things. He played the older gen. Like in the beginning of the film, there's the Council of Twelve. They all get murdered, and then later on, they establish a new Council of Twelve. And he's sort of the leader of that group. He's a very old, very old, old, old man, elderly, white hair, talks with a very you know shaky kind of voice. He played Doctor Goodfellow on Buck Rogers. Uh, I think that was season two, if I remember right. He was a regular on that. He's been in a million things. If if you Google him, you'll you'll know him immediately. But it's I always love seeing him in that because I mean again another one of those actors who was in everything you know looking at IMDb he's in Twilight Zone he's in Mission Impossible you know he, he I saw I think I saw Charlie's Angels up here he, he's done a million different things that we all know it's like okay I know that guy of course oh yeah I I, I opened up again his Wikipedia page and his filmography is just just goes on and on. So another actor, Fantasy Island, there you go, that uh, just really jumps off the screen that you you just immediately trust him. He's the elder statesman whenever he's on screen, and he's the, the voice of uh, the trusted character. Well, as, as with all actors of that era who are worth seeing, he was on an episode of Columbo. There you go. So, all right. I think we're going to kind of shift over to Once Upon a Geek in just a couple of minutes. So before we do that, let's rate this mm, okay where are you ranking this <sighs> okay this is hard because you know, we're you're, you're interesting you're coming at this as someone who hasn't seen it in 40 years right you're coming at it as a movie buff a movie critic someone who's got probably more love for the reboot series than this series so you're coming at it with a more critical eye i'm having a hard time taking my nostalgia goggles off right so if i'm being if i'm trying to be on i mean like if I wasn't being honest, I'd rate it Jaws 2, okay? But, or if I followed my nostalgia, I'd rate it Jaws 2. But that's probably not fair. There's enough clunky stuff in here. There's enough visuals that looks like TV. Uh, there's enough, like, the whole thing with the casino seems a little out of place sometimes. Um, I think I would have to probably rate it Jaws 3. My heart wants to rate it Jaws 2. My my head will rate it Jaws 3. Well, I think you're going to agree with what I say now, and and I think it's going to make you just a little bit feel, feel a little bit better about that. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed watching this. I enjoyed watching it in 1978. I enjoyed watching it in 2023. Okay. Uh, I think to enjoy it, you do have to have a certain amount of love for that, those 70s style television science fiction shows, even though this was made to be cinematic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say the biggest detraction on this is it probably doesn't have the rewatchability of you know, where, where you got to see this regularly. But I do think you could easily put this in a run with the actual series, which didn't mm -hmm. actually last that long. And then just, you know, kind of every once in a while, just do a, a rewatch re of the entire series. So it does have the rewatchability in that respect, I believe. So I'm almost going to put it on the border, uh, where it's not quite Jaws 2, but it's on the higher level of Jaws 3. Okay. I can live with that. I can live with that quite a bit. So that's 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 where I'm seeing it, and I'm I'm happy to have my gifted Blu-ray of this show. <laughs> and I and I will I will end my commentary by thanking you for that again. Well, thank you so much for having me on this show. I was excited to talk about this, and you're the guy to do this with. And uh, it's been an absolute blast. And I'm looking forward to our conversation about the comics and the reboot. 
And where we where can they hear that? That is over on the Firewater Podcast Network on a show called Once Upon a Geek. It's episode 10. It will drop on April 9, um, April 16th, I'm sorry, 2023. So whenever you're listening to this, you can just look for April 16th, 2023, and you'll see the Battlestar Galactica episode. Uh, I, think it, I think it'll have Marvel Comics in the title or something like that as well, but check that out. We did that so smoothly. <laughs> Thank I, you, I everybody, for listening, and definitely go over and listen to that, because, you know, if nothing else, I'm on it. There you go. That's worth that's worth the price of admission, right? For a free podcast. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. By your command.
known to be under heavy attack.